Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Hi, I'm Scott Harrison. I'm from New York City and I'm playing Sunny. Hi, my name is Savannah Taedo and I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'll be playing Cher. Lights up on Sunny and Cher running. We need to hurry. I'm an aggro, not a cheetah. I'm not built to run. We should have stopped and asked for directions when we had the chance. There's nobody around. We, uh, we passed those lemurs a while back. They would have known anything. Excuse me, have you seen a giant boat? It's an ark, Sunny, and it was worth a try. Will you stop tugging me along? You're about to pull my foreleg off. With this big catastrophe looming, I don't want to wait a year for it to regenerate. Do you know any other arrows coming on the boat? It's not a boat, it's an ark, and there won't be any other arrows. Only two were called, remember? We're wasting time, let's go. What did I just say about my foreleg? All right, you big cub. There, you're free. Happy? Is this right? I think this is right. I can't believe we got lost. Nobody told us the way, Cher. Well, God told us to get there, so we're going to get there. This way. No, I'm pretty sure it's this way. No, that's the way we came. How do you know? Because that's the tree you crashed into and allegedly broke your snout. But, oh, look, miraculously healed for the procession onto the ark. That is, if we get there in time, you always make me late to think. Ow! Now what? I just got stung by a mosquito. Lord, grant me the patience with this arrow. It really hurts, Cher. Did God call any mosquitoes? I don't know, Sonny. I think I'm bleeding, Cher. For the love of God, let me see. I don't want it to get infected. I'll stand here and elevate my paw. Fine, but let's keep moving. Physical strain will just make me bleed even worse. I'd better stop and take care of this. You go on without me. Sonny, I'm not going to leave you here alone. I'll be right behind you. What are you up to, Sonny? If I didn't know any better, I'd swear you were purposely trying to stall us. I'm not stalling. Whatever gave you that idea? That's preposterous. As preposterous as... What were those things who passed us on the way here? Platypus? As preposterous as a platypus. Or as a platypie. As preposterous as a platypus? You're not fooling anyone, Sonny. I know... You're scared. That's okay. No, it's not that. I... I have doubts. Doubts about what? The Ark? Well, not just the Ark, Cher. You know, just forget it. I don't want to upset you. Tell me, Sonny. I don't want to go. I want to stay. Why didn't you say that three days ago when we left home? I didn't have time to think about it then. And you have time to think about it now. It all happened so fast, Cher. One minute, I was having a good time with my brothers by the watering hole, and you came out to tell me to clean up the grass bed, and I followed you inside because I hate when you order me around in front of the males, and then bam! All of a sudden, you claw me saying God spoke to you. That we need to drop everything and find this ark before she destroys the world. I didn't know how to process it, Cher. I mean, we're talking about total annihilation. I couldn't even say goodbye to my family, let alone explain why we were leaving. How could we not tell them? We agreed that we didn't want to scare them. But we didn't even give them a chance to come with us. That's the problem, Cher. Well, God didn't call them, Sonny. She called us. I know, but why us? What makes us so much better than all the other Ehus out there? 
how can you tell me that God won't save my brother or your little sister Beyonce and her kaboom? I don't know why God does the things she does. That's why she's God. I know it's a lot to take in, but when we're on the Ark, we'll have plenty of time to process it all. So please, what can I say to make you change your mind? My mind is made up. I wish you had told me all this earlier. I didn't want to hurt you. Look, if God had given us a bit more information, I might be more inclined to heed her call. Sonny, we know something bad is going to happen to the world, and we know how to live through it. What more information do you need? Well, for one, why do we need a boat? It's an ark. How big is this thing? Do you really think it can fit two of every species? And who is this Noah guy? He built the ark. Yeah, him. How do we know we can trust him? God told us we could. Well, I was standing right there next to you and I didn't hear a thing. If God is omnipotent, then why didn't she speak to me? Are you upset she chose me? What are you talking about? You don't want to have cubs with me? Ugh, not again. You've been putting it off for a while, and now you're forced to procreate with me and can't find it in you to do it. That is so not the issue. It's Shakira, isn't it? You'd wish you'd mated with her instead? Hey! harder than any male afro on my mating dance for you. Then I just don't get it, Sonny. I don't understand why you're so upset. Cher, are you blind? Let me spell it out for you. One, if God's all-powerful, why did she make a mistake with us in the first place? Two, there's gotta be more than two good afros out there, so why does my family have to die? Three, I don't know if I can trust a God who saved mosquitoes because I just got bit again, goddammit! Sonny, don't say things you don't mean. I mean exactly what I say. God damn you, mosquitoes. God damn you all! Stop it. That won't help. And it's my family, too. You're not that special. Exactly. That I won't force you to stay. I'll respect your decision to leave me. You're really going to let me walk away? If you believe in God's plan, I won't stop you from following, but I won't do it. What do you mean you won't do it? I'm calling your bluff. If the apocalypse comes, then she fooled me. You really want to gamble with God? Well, I thought God doesn't gamble, but obviously she's betting it all on this ark thing. You're just being stubborn. I just don't believe this is the end. Well, I believe. Problem solved. More than that. I don't understand. I don't believe in God, Cher. What? Stop joking around, Sonny. Of course you believe in God. No, I don't. How can I anymore? What if you're wrong? What if I am? All right, I'll look at it from your perspective. Maybe this is a test. Maybe we need to prove our faith in God by having faith that everything will work out by staying here. You just denounced your belief in God, so forgive me if I don't necessarily trust your opinion on any theological subject anymore. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to help you see my point of view. If God created us and saw that we were good, why destroy everyone? She's not destroying everyone. She's saving us and two lions, two elephants, two giraffes, two humans. Humans are the worst. Actually, she's saving more than two humans, now that I think of it. Noah gets to bring his family so they can all take care of us. So... Humans started this whole mess, yet my family dies and Noah's is saved? How can you believe in a god that values humans over Ehrus? That's not true. That's not the god I know. Well, who is god, really? What is god? Come on, Sonny. God is everywhere. She's in everything and everyone. So, if God is everyone and everything, then destroying the world will destroy God. Why would God destroy herself? 
Waiting for the inevitable. Oh, you want to test me. Supposedly the last day of Earth, and you want to test me. You're going. Not without you. Come on, Cher. Both of us or none of us. That's stupid. Your head is stupid. You know what'll happen if we don't get on the Ark, right? Nobody will ever know of errors. We'll be lost forever. Of course, this is all contingent on the assumption that the world will end tonight and the Ark is our salvation. Yup. It means no Ehru cubs. I know. You sure about this? No. Then why aren't you going? You've been trying to board that ark for three days. Why aren't you doing it? Because Ehru's made for life. You and me, Sonny, we chose each other. You're stuck with me and I'm stuck with you. If you don't come with me, it's better that I stay here and die with you than without you. And the whole point of everyone going on the Ark two by two is so we can repopulate the Earth once it's all over. How am I going to do that alone? And I'm not ready to make some Eru crocodile hybrid or something. That's just anatomically impossible. Plus, it's too late to find another mate, so really, there is no point in even trying if you don't come with me. You win. I concede. This isn't what I meant don't want to change your beliefs. I I just wanted you to understand my choice. Sonny, God knows I'd do anything for you. Believe me, she knows why I'm staying. Sonny and Cher sit down and lean up against one another, watching the rain fall for a moment. Cher? Yes? starting to flood. That explains the boat. Lucky we are good swimmers. Lights fade. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity. All these fantastic playwrights. Uh, I'm Dana, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Miss Christy. Say hi, Christy. Hello, everybody. Uh, and today we are talking to Rebecca Dezita, uh, who is our playwright who wrote the fantastic The Ones Left Behind. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Ooh. we just got to listen uh, to an awesome recording of Scott and Savannah, um, doing this such a fun piece honestly so what I'd love to to talk with you about a little bit Rebecca is what 
what did this grow out of? Um, yeah, so I um, I went to grad school for playwriting, and I think one of our first assignments was to write a 10-minute play. Um, and I don't exactly remember why this particular idea of like animals not getting onto the arc, how that came about, but somehow I got that idea. Um, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting because like we we know the story of like all the animals come two by two and march onto the ark, and that's how, you know, like those are the ones that survive the flood. Um, and it started to made, make me think of like what, so that means that like some animals most likely and people didn't survive the flood. So what is the story behind that? And I have to ask right away, um, I'm a huge animal person. Uh, I actually, I'm out in San Diego right now working on a show at uh, La Jolla Playhouse. And while I've been keeping myself pretty isolated because of COVID regulations, I did make sure I got out to the zoo. There's a really fantastic zoo out here. Um, but I was surprised. I immediately Googled what an eru was uh, because I hadn't really heard of it before. And I was picturing it in my mind. And what's really curious is you don't get a lot of images that come up when you Google that. So um, is this an animal that comes from your Croatian background understanding? Is this something from your animal knowledge? Where did you pull these uh, animal characters, Sunny and Cher specifically? Oh, from? they're entirely made up. Um, so they don't exist in real life because they didn't get on the ark. So we don't know about them at all. Uh, I love that. Yeah. So I, I came up with some name. I don't know where. Oh, I do remember actually. So um, uh, Eru, I don't like say how to pronounce it, but basically I actually took a line from Harry Potter in the Goblet of Fire when Harry's in the maze and he's trying to answer the riddle of the Phoenix and it's like the the end of end and like uh, I forget exactly what it is but it's like the sound that you say when you don't know what to say and he kept being like uh, and I was like oh that's perfect I should create an animal that has those that the name has those sounds in it for when you're trying to figure out what it is and so that's where that came from that's so cool yeah Dana, you made me feel so much better because I did the exact same thing. I was like, is this a mythological creature? Is this a, and I'm like trying to do research on it. I find nothing. <laughs> so good. You made me feel better just then. Yeah. yeah. And I think I did Which, actually of course Google we get to... it too. Cause I was like, what if it actually is real? <laughs> like, just to make sure I wasn't like trying to pass off something that I thought that I invented, but actually did exist. But um at least according to the knowledge that we all collectively have from Google images, they do not exist. So that's good. Um, and that's a perfect jumping off point to kind of talk about. Uh, so you wrote this when you were in graduate school, you've created a whole, you're asking questions about pe people and, and things and beings left behind. And you've created a whole now non-existent species, which in a 10 minute play is like unbelievable. It's so creative. And, uh, but let's talk about, your actual journey to playwriting where did you go to school if you want to share that why did you choose to um, get a graduate degree in playwriting how how did all that come about for you yeah um I I think through my whole life I've always been interested in theater and writing plays um I, I as a kid I was always trying to dramatize things um I was never really into building things so much but like give me a doll or like a Barbie or something. And like, I will come up, I would come up with stories about it um, and have really complicated and complex scenarios. Um, and even in school, like any school presentation or project, if given the opportunity, I always tried to dramatize it as opposed to do like a straight presentation so, like, I had to do a novel report my freshman year of high school for In the Time of the Butterflies. And instead of, like, having a poster and doing that, I chose to be all four of the characters. And then I gave my classmates a sheet of questions and, like, they were press and they were asking me questions as the characters at a press conference. So I didn't realize at the time that that's what I was doing. But upon reflection, mm -hmm. that's always what I had been doing growing up. Um, so I always knew that I was a writer in some respect. Um, and then 
Um, I was always interested in theater, but I didn't really start getting into it until I went to college. I attended Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Um, so Dana, I'm actually currently in Orange County right now <laughs> visiting my family. So I'm oh, also wow. on the West Coast. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and I took my first playwriting class and I was like, this is really fun. This is kind of exactly what I've been looking for. It's like theater and writing combined together. Why didn't I think of this before? Um, so I did that. Um, and I knew that I wanted to go to grad school for some type for writing. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to focus on, whether that was like poetry or fiction or playwriting. Um, when I graduated uh, college, I actually did Teach for America uh, and was placed in Memphis. And I taught high school special education for a couple of years. And even within that, like, Again, I brought a lot of like theater and dramatization stuff in my own like teaching philosophy as well too. They must have loved you. Your students must have. Loved uh, you. I think like any teacher, <laughs> there were students that loved and there were students that hated me. So, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. But. Yeah. Um. So like some really some really great moments with that as well too. Um. But it, I'm I really didn't get a chance to like go see a lot of theater shows at the time because I was just so busy um, and I really didn't so I kind of put playwriting away for a little bit uh, but I had submitted one of my plays to a workshop opportunity um, and it was chosen so I got to go to New York and they had a day where I was working with actors and a director um, and workshopping one of my plays uh, and I was like I need to do this all the time. This is amazing. I want to do this more. So that kind of cemented like, okay, I'm going to go to school for playwriting. Um, applied to a few places. Catholic was the one. I went to Catholic University of America, which is in Washington, D.C. So that's where I live now. I've just kind of, I've stayed in the area. Um, and uh, they gave me money. So that was really awesome when you're getting a playwriting degree, not to graduate with debt. Just being totally honest about that. Um, but it was a really great program for me. I think uh, uh, I also grew up in a really Catholic family. So I often do write about religion or spirituality or faith in some regards. So that was also kind of a good place for that too, because I sort of was like near scholars that I could talk to about some of this stuff. I don't think I talked to any scholars or anything about the ones left behind this little 10 minute play. Um, but it, it was a good environment to think about some of these sorts of things. Uh, so basically that, um, uh, yeah, I got to grad school. I did that for three years and then I graduated. And so now I'm living the life of a lot of playwrights where I'm writing on my off time. I have a day job and then, um, trying to submit to various opportunities to get my work out there. Side note before I ask my question. So are you originally from Orange County? Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm originally from the Inland Empire, if you know where that is, like oh, Riverside, yeah. Medina, Redlands area. So yeah, totally. Um, I was like, heck yeah. I'm all about Southern California. Um, okay. But back to, back to my my question. Okay. So the history of this piece, so very cool that you, you wrote it in grad school and all that. What, have you been able to see this produced or performed? Um, you know, uh, what has that been like to be able to hear it up on its feet with our current actor, Scott and Savannah? What, what has all that been like for you? Yeah. So I have been able to see it produced. I've, there've been a couple of readings of it and then it was produced once as part of the, it was actually a student 10 minute play um, festival that um, was produced and run by some CUA students. So um, there were a couple of college students who were doing it um, and actually seeing it like produced with costumes and like a little bit of like that was really interesting because I had always for the most part I I I think about my scripts and plays pretty minimally like I don't necessarily think about filling out the world in the script like I I'm a fan of writing some impossible stage directions and things that like evoke certain things but I'm not like 
it, it's different from like Tennessee Williams or one of those playwrights where it's like the house has to look like this, you know? Um, so I had just never really, I had always thought about this particular play being performed just with like two people and like not even wearing like anything that would evoke another creature. It was just two people. And then like the imagination of the audience runs wild with what these creatures actually look like. Um, at Catholic, they actually did add some like different features to their costume. So they had like little pig snouts that were on their noses right there. And they had ears too. Um, so seeing that was just really fun because it was like, oh yeah, like from the script, that actually does really make sense because they talk about their snouts and stuff. Um, but also was just really weird because even I couldn't imagine it looking like that as well too, if that makes sense. And you started talking a little bit uh, about your process, right? You said you like maybe writing, um, what you say, impossible stage directions, which I think there are uh, hordes of directors and designers and actors out there who kind of crave that. So you definitely are supplying um, something there. I would love to hear even more about your process. That's something we love to talk about with our playwrights. Um, we've interviewed playwrights of all ages with all backgrounds. That's the amazing thing about being an artist is, right, you don't have to go to school to do it. You can go to school. Um, so as someone who went through like a formalized uh, master's program, have you developed that process since going to school? Um, just talk about when you when you sit down to write, is there something that you do or is it different for each play? Yeah, so my professor, who was John Klein, um, who recently retired from his position, um, he's a great playwright. Um, uh, so he was the head of the playwriting program at Catholic. He was really big on he had his he had us do what he called beat sheets. So it was listing out all of the beats mm -hmm. in the plot and getting to the character's objective. Um, that was. I think that was really useful for some of the scripts where I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. It forced me to really kind of think of a map and that was really good. I'll totally admit, sorry, John, I don't do that anymore for my plays. Um, but I will sometimes create some type of outline if I feel like I just need to figure out how to piece together certain things. What, typically happens most of the time is I know exactly how I want to start and I know like the last line or the last image that I want on stage and so I'll work to that and everything else in between is something that I discover in the writing and development process so I knew for the ones left behind I knew that I wanted the two characters to be sitting down and to watch the rain and then for them to have the like it looks like it's flooding. Lucky we're good swimmers. And then for a tent right there. Did you always picture this as a short piece or have you ever thought about expanding it into something larger or you it explored exactly what you wanted it to in its time frame? I think it does really work as a 10 minute. Maybe there is a world in which like I explore more biblical stories kind of in another thinking about it from another perspective. Um, and I have written another play that is a full length. It's called Preggers or Parenthood for Virgins. Um, and that is a comedy that it was actually my thesis play at Catholic and was recently produced at Cincinnati Lab Theater, which was really awesome to go see. Um, for their New Works Festival. And that is a comedic adaptation of the, the nativity story, essentially, um, but told from the perspective of Mary and Joseph as new parents and then the angel Gabriel. So this type of thing of like looking at these familiar stories, but from different perspectives or from a different lens is something that I guess I do fairly often um, with that. So Maybe there is some type of like Annie Baker has her like yeah, yeah. like Annie Baker has her revolt plays. Maybe I have my like Christianity plays someday. I don't know, and it would be those two in there, and maybe something else. After an audience member watches your show or hears it, as they would experience with us, um, are there questions that you hope that they ask themselves, or is there an experience that you were hoping that you can evoke within someone? Um, I like 
to write things that are can make you laugh and cry. So things that are hilarious, but then are also really poignant and make you think. And I think that's what I tried to do with this one. Um, and I think like I had fun kind of exploring like what, what it, okay. So these are, these are creatures that believe in God that are really similar to a Christian God, the Christian God that a lot of people believe in, but they aren't humans. And so what are the like different types of beliefs that they might have or how might they see that God differently? So I use she, her pronouns in the script for God, which is um, definitely not typical um, for Christianity at least. Um, uh, And then I tried to infuse the belief of like God in nature a lot because like these are animals and they are a part of nature too so I guess like those types of theological questions I had fun exploring and so my hope is that an audience member would go huh I never thought about it in that way or something yeah the juxtaposition between like these questions Christianity based questions right and poking and prodding versus like your characters are pop singers, right? Like Sunny and Cher, Shakira, Beyonce and Blue. Um, was that like real purposeful or was that another kind of tongue in cheek, you kind of spinning things on its head? Yeah, I mean, definitely tongue in cheek. Um, for sure. I think I, I didn't know that I wanted to continually use like these pop culture references. I knew I wanted the two um, eras to be Sunny and Cher because when I was thinking of like, really famous male female duos Sunny and Cher popped into my brain so I was like that's perfect for them um and then I was like oh my gosh what if I added more like pop culture or pop singers into it that would just be really funny easter eggs for lack of a better term I guess um for that and I will say that in a previous draft there were like even more references but ultimately I was like that might take people too much out of the play if it was just like Christina and Brittany and like all of these other figures yeah. <laughs> into it a little bit too much um but I did stick with Beyonce and I love Shakira so Shakira's in there well and if I was going to sound design this I would add Ariana's God is a woman somewhere in there oh that would be so um, good so yeah. You know, it definitely like made my, I made some fun connections, but definitely was not distracting. It, it made it enjoyable for me. I'm sure obviously Christy Nautic, I, I'm sure it was like, it was, it was a little bit of fun to, to hear um, that way. Gosh, yeah. I mean, I'm already writing a play about like made up animals. So I, we, we can have more fun. <laughs> so you've mentioned Annie Baker and you've mentioned Tennessee Williams. Do you have any playwrights in particular that you've read that you feel have influenced how you ap- approach playwriting? It's funny because I feel like I write plays that are either like a little bit more on the sitcom end of the spectrum or ones that are like pretty apocalyptic and dark. Um, so like, although the ones left behind is actually apocalyptic, but I wouldn't say it's like that dark. Um, but uh, actually, Sarah Kane was pretty influential, particularly mm. her play Blasted. Um, yeah. John Janae, I love The Absurdist. Um, so John Janae um, uh, really messed with my brain when I first started learning about him and reading his stuff. So he wrote The Maids um, and The Balcony and The Blacks. It, it also like kind of depends on which script we're talking about as well too so like Mm -hmm. a certain script might have more influences from one other writer over another those two I'd say are pretty big for sure um I think I'd also throw the pillow man by Martin McDonough in there as well yeah that's another great one 
ETC produced Pillow Man. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And I've always wanted to produce a Sarah Kane. I now I feel like messaging Gary and be like, she's mentioning all our playwrights. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Clearly, we have just been exposed to this one, but I can see where those influences are coming in. And um, you're kind of filtering through your own unique perspective, those ideas, which is so lovely and beautiful and what art is. Um, one more kind of process question uh, for from me is I really latched on to the idea that you said you often know what the last line or image of your play will be um, because I'm the kind of person who will often go to the end of a book and read the last sentence before she starts it. I will admit some people hate that. They feel like it's ruining a surprise. Um, I both love and loathe surprises. So that, that tells you anything about um my psyche. But so I'm fascinated that that's a place that you write from. Um, and with that in mind, do you sit down and do structured writing time? Or when some kind of image or line hits you, is that when you kind of are like, okay, I got to go take notes, I got to draft this? Is it a combo of the two? Um, how, how do you dedicate? I know you mentioned like many of us have a day job and then do our art in other holes in our schedule how do you navigate writing with all of that yeah honestly I'm the worst <laughs> like I, I I I'm not I've never been that person that like wakes up at 5 a.m and then writes for a couple hours and then like gets ready for work and then goes that that way I need to give myself some arbitrary deadlines if anything so that's really helpful to do um but usually it's it's just whatever time that I can find. And I am that person, too, that's like, I'll finish writing something and then I will take sort of that like mental break for a month or two or maybe even more and not really work on something. But also as writers, aren't we like always writing? Because I'm also like the type of person that really turns over an idea for honestly years before I even try typing it out or putting it to paper so I'll like be struck with like oh that's a title for something or like oh that that's something that I'm interested in talking about and I will think about it constantly but I won't actually write start writing it down until I feel like I have those those two things that I was talking about. So like the beginning and the end, I guess, if that makes sense. I mean, some of our most prolific artists, right? Like doesn't Taylor Swift, she's like, I have voice memos in my phones for years. Like, you know, uh, so I think that's it. I don't think you can, um, I don't think you should say you're the worst. We have had interviewed so many playwrights and each of them has their unique process. Um, and, you know, you got to go when the inspiration is there and when it's when it's ready, you know? So I love, I, that's one of the most fascinating parts about this um, is hearing how everybody works. Yeah. I do utilize the notes app on my phone. That was one of the great things when I got a smartphone. Cause I didn't have to be like, wait, I need to remember to write this down in my notebook. It was just right there. So I have like yeah. the list of things that I just keep the running notes on of various things, either like things that I've overheard or like I'll be doing the dishes or brushing my teeth and then something will come to me and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's it. That's what that character should do. And then I'll add it to my notes and then figure it out, you know, later when I actually write it down. Do you have a theater story in particular in your experience with theater that stands out for you? That you feel like sharing? Uh, so the one that's coming to mind is probably one of my first theater experiences. Um, so my very first Shakespeare play was The Merry Wives of Windsor for all things that I saw when I was five. And my uncle uh, took my family. I think it was a production through the public library and we went and saw it. And like, why would you take a five-year-old to The Merry Wives of Windsor? But they did. Um <laughs> But like I apparently Exposing I had a theater. blast. Um, <laughs> apparently I was laughing a lot. I like there are some images from that production that I do hold in my mind. Like oh yeah, I remember the masks looks like this. What really stuck out to me as a child, I remember registering this, is that Falstaff says ass, which was a bad word, and so I was like, <gasps> when he said it. Um, but apparently I had a really great time and was like the best audience member. And like people came up to us after to be like, that that was amazing. 
uh, you brought her. <laughs> so um, I think that also sort of set me on a path for theater at a young age, too. That's what I was going to say. It sounds like the bug bit you when you're fairly young. You're recreating Merry Wives with your Barbies that night later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Merry Wives oh, of Windsor yeah. doesn't get as much love as it should, in my opinion. It's it's really fun. I agree. We do want to talk a little bit too about uh, this this season. We try to kind of keep things on somewhat of a theme each season. Uh, this season we're talking about major events. Um, clearly, within the past, you know, three, two and a half, three years, uh, there's been a whole series of, of collective consciousness, global, nationwide, major events between pandemics between coming together with racial reckoning um female you could talk about uh female reproductive rights right there feels like there's a major event kind of happening um uh at an exhausting level (laughs) lately (laughs) um but but what we're curious about is how maybe a, a smaller more personal yet major event um influences you and your artistic process, whether that was something for the ones left behind as someone newly entering grad school or another piece um, doesn't have to be even recent. How, how like any kind of major event filters its way into your writing. There's always something of myself in each one of my plays, um, whether I consciously put it there or not. Um, I don't know if there's like anything super specific aside from like, my upbringing in a religious household and like thinking about these types of theological questions for the ones left behind. Um, so I, as far as like things that are happening more recently and all the things. Um, so I've been thinking of writing a play that um it's sort of about pandemics, but sort of not. I know it's going to be a love story. But basically, I had my first summer last year with cicadas, which I had never experienced before. So for those of you who don't know, for our listeners who don't know. That's a major event. Yeah. <laughs> for our listeners who don't know, cicadas are these insects that um, they look like locusts or grasshoppers, but they're totally harmless. Um, they they live underground for 17 years and then every 17 years they come up out of the ground and they fly into the trees and they scream their heads off for somebody to mate with them and then they mate and then they crawl back into the ground and die (laughs) and like that's their life 17 years they're underground and then they scream and mate and die and that's it Um, and I'm not into bugs at all, uh, so I was not looking forward to cicada summer, but it actually wasn't as bad as I expected, and they're kind of fascinating to me right now, so I know I'm going to write some type of thing about cicadas coming up with that. Mm. That's also related to pandemic, so I'm still trying to put it together with that, because I think it was also poetic for, like, uh, so scientists have named certain broods of cicadas so when there's like a year that like hundreds of thousands of cicadas emerge from the ground they name that brood so last year it was brood x i i thought it was really poetic that like brood x was coming out during a like pandemic summer when a lot of change was happening it made me think about my mortality a lot (laughs) i think a lot of us did anyway in the past few years for sure so yeah big adjustment for me when i moved to the south just how my parents just visited recently. I have twin girls that just turned one years old. And uh, my mom was like, is it so loud at night like this all the time? Yeah, it's amazing. It's from like 8 a.m. to basically 8 p.m. And it sounds, I was like coming up with so many different analogies for them. Like it sounds like the most like ultra rain stick, but like 12 hours a day. Or, like, if you've seen the show Lost, there's the smoke monster, and so it has Mm. that, like, so there's, like, the tick-tick sound, not, like, the ooga pop, but it's, like, the tick-tick sound, but, like, dialed up 
like all the way on your volume. It's wild. It's a wild time. Cicadas are wild. (laughs) I love hearing you talk about this because um, it's so clear to me now why your writing is so visceral. Um, And it's so funny that you're, you're, you're not big on stage directions necessarily, but you said you like to put the impossible ones in there, but uh, it's, I think it's because when you are picturing things and as you're describing them to us, um, you there's a very clear sense of of setting, of location, of, uh, I mean, like, I can see why there's imbued in your writing this sense of, like, temperature and uh, taste and smell and, like, right? Like, even though I didn't know what those creatures were, I was getting a sense of them and the ones still left behind. I could hear the rain falling at the end. Um, and we heard one without a soundscape. I'm, I'm assuming Gary will actually put it in, in a soundscape uh, for our listeners, but like, even without it, I could hear that. So um, I just wanted to say that I'm, I'm really feel like very fortunate that I get to hear you describe all of that because it's, it's such a key into um, what you put into your writing. And, and that's what I love about artists is we take these unique talents and, how we view the world and and put them in into the the art. And so it was just like such a joy to hear you even describe cicadas to us just now. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I have one other question about the play. So I just wanted to ask, um, because we do, uh, we were fortunate enough to receive some COVID grant money and pandemic grant money uh, to keep producing this podcast. Um, And that's why we've chosen the theme of major events because part of that major event of birthing this podcast came out of COVID. Uh, And you mentioned you wrote this in grad school. So obviously this was pre-pandemic. I don't know what the date was. Um, But something we've talked about a lot is now uh, I can never look at things the same way I did before the pandemic Mm. um, because it's just changed us so much. And even though I'm assuming this was a pre-pandemic play, uh, I could not help but liken the decision with Sunny and Cher to like stay or go and follow guidelines or not follow guidelines to like this feeling that so many of us had. I mean, I went through the entire pandemic in New York City and there was like some tension with my family who lives in Florida. They live in South Florida um, about whether I should go and go and stay with them or not. And being in the city in the epicenter and and there was the decision and ultimately I stayed and and chose what was right for me. But um, even just beyond the bounds of the religious undertones, it's fascinating how now we can kind of look at this play like, oh yeah, this talking about cycles and cicadas, like, mm, we've had these decisions before. And then there are these major events again in society where we have to decide like, is it good or bad to be stuck with somebody? And can it be both? And, you know, do we stay or do we go, or do we follow these rules from the higher ups or do we trust our own intuition? And I was just wondering if um, you ever reflect back on any of your past work since we've gone through much that much change, or if you hear or see any of that in, in any of your work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I went through multiple existential crises. I described them <laughs> during the pandemic, for sure. Because um, as a theater artist, I mean... Um, like theater it that that is what I do for my day job um and it's my vocation that I've chosen for myself and it's just straight up my hobby like I go see shows all the time and when I wasn't able to do really any of those things I I asked the question a few times like who am I if if I don't do this you know I mean ultimately it was I, I I did write an entire play during the the first the first year of the pandemic Yes, the first year of the pandemic. And it was just like, I don't know what else to do. So I'm going to I'm gonna do what feels right that'll help me, you know, at the time. And I think that's true for any artist, right? Where you don't necessarily know why you're doing it. You just feel compelled to do it because you don't know what else to do or you don't know who you are without that thing, right? I'm... I'm nodding because I had the same existential crises multiple times. I think I was even on the phone with Gary at one point, like half crying, like, who am I? Who am I now that this rug has been pulled out from under us? So it is definitely a a universal feeling. Um, So I just wanted to point that out, that that, uh, 
I know I personally have been changed and that's like, I'm looking at, at, at theater now so differently based on these non-theatrical changes in my life. Um, so that was kind of uh, pleasant, to, satisfying to, to feel in the recording as well. Yeah. So, and I think, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I think it's, I think it's worth it to point out more explicitly what you all are doing with this particular podcast, right? Because there was a whole to do about like what makes theater theater has to be like in person. Right. Or, and then there's the whole question of like, what makes live theater, but really like theater is about the communal experience of like creating, creating something together that is some type of performance. And so whether it is quote unquote online, like that can still be theater, even though it's not necessarily in person, but like you're still sort of helping to create this performance piece together, even if that performance piece is online or it's, or it's through a podcast or something like that. I mean, honestly, you nailed it. That's, and that was such a debate. I think all theater companies discussed within their own little four walls of what does pivoting look like? That was such a buzzword for a while. What, you know, what does it look like to move forward, reinvent, reimagine when it had seemed so formulaic. I remember Gary, when I was one of his students, him teaching that there's the two primary elements of theater are you need actors and you need an audience. And if you have those two things, you know, everything else is uh, negotiable on a level. And, you know, certainly virtually we have those two things. So it's, it, it is still accomplished. That was, and I, I was like such a beautiful way to, to wrap that up. Um, I think we can ask our, we have three questions. We always ask all of our playwrights at the very end as a little touchstone um, for each season and each interview, but. Do you have a favorite word? A favorite word? That's so hard. There's so many. The word that's coming to mind is wanderlust. I feel like that's just really that's perfect one. for what that means. I don't know if it's my like favorite of all time, but it's a good one. Um, we also like to ask people, do you have a favorite place or location or setting or um doesn't even have to be favorite maybe one that's nostalgic or really meaningful to you favorite setting so I don't again this is one of those things where like I don't know if it's my favorite but uh like a really literary experience I'd say uh so I got the opportunity to study abroad when I was in college and I went with one of my really good friends who's also a playwright and we took a lot of classes together um, and at the time we were really uh, I was really obsessed with John Keats and we got to go to Rome and um, you can visit his house and then you can also visit where he's buried too that's also in Rome and we had just taken a class on like Britlin and talked about the romantics. And so we went and visited his grave and we took out our notebooks and we sat on the grass by his grave and we just wrote whatever. Um, and then there was also a random chicken that was walking around too. And so we were like, this is perfect. <laughs> but also sounds very you like beautiful and poetic and deep and thoughtful. And then just like, let's throw Beyonce into the play. Let's throw a chicken by the grave. Like, I feel like that seems very on brand for you, Rebecca. I don't know you, you know, well, but it seems like it fits. You have described my brand more clearly than I ever have. <laughs> I also pretty regularly end up visiting writers' graves, too. So I guess, like, I don't know. That, that also seemed to be a trend that we did a lot when we were studying abroad. We got to visit Oscar Wilde's grave in Paris before they put the glass over it. So, like, pose, you know, after COVID safety, it's like, we probably shouldn't have done that. That would have been weird. But we got to do the whole, like, kiss it and leave a lipstick mark before they put the glass over it the last people to kiss oscar wilde's great i don't know if i was one of the last but i was certainly one of many do you have an item in particular or uh something in your life a token of some sort that just means means a lot to you yes uh there are like a few that i'm thinking about to be honest um well so the ones that i still have uh I was really close with my grandparents and when my grandfather died, I 
basically like and I they live in California and I was still living in DC so before we sold their house I like went through um it was both my my grandparents my grandfather and my grandmother they died at months apart but it was still you know all their stuff was in the house um so I went through their house and I was like base I in some respects I was like sort of looting their belongings <laughs> in the sense that like I was like opening all the drawers and seeing what was inside and stuff and I ended up uh I surprisingly didn't really take anything from my grandmother, but I did find in one of her drawers she had um she had uh one of my plays that she had printed out and like a little like preserved in like a little plastic bag. So I was like, oh Nana. Um, but I did end up taking uh, one of my grandfather's suspenders and one of his ties. So I still have those with me. That's awesome. What I love about what you've shared so much is that because life is never, I'll say monochromatic, it's so grayscale. And so when you talk about these, you know, painful moments that have levity or, you know, that you know, like maybe it's it's dark, but there's also humor and things like that. I'm like, God, I love that because that's just so, that's so life. It's so real to me. It's, it's, I, I feel like I need to mention, so you asked about like some of my favorite players, but honestly, I'm really influenced by the TV shows that I watch too. And so, <laughs> oh, yeah, please yeah, tell us. So, <laughs> and I literally just finally finished rewatching this too. So this is perfect. But the, the TV show Scrubs is actually like super influential because Scrubs is really great at like, they'll have super absurd fantasy sequences. And then you're like, oh shoot, this is really real. And why am I crying right now? So like I, that's sort of something that I also aspire to as well too. Thank you so much for sharing with us. If there's anything else that you wanted to say, um, please let us know. Otherwise, that was a total blast. Becca, is there anywhere that is there anywhere that our listeners could go to learn more about you? Uh, yeah. So if you have a new play exchange account, you can find me on new play exchange and you can read pretty much all of my stuff there. It's available for that. Um, you can also, I'm not super big on social media, but I do have a Twitter that I'm obsessed with because I am a nerd. (laughs) We love nerds. (laughs) We're all nerds. The Ensemble Theater Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast were one of 11 organizations across the Chattanooga Valley to receive grant funding through the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan. As part of this podcast, for each episode, we would like to highlight one of the other organizations receiving a SHARP grant. Founded in 2020, Moving Groove Kids Garvey Program is a nonprofit organization committed to the empowerment of underserved youth and communities in the Chattanooga area. Their goal is to help children build strong, flexible, coordinated bodies and mind through movement and music. They welcome all children into their program, no matter their race, gender, physical or mental capabilities. And they meet each child where they are and do their best to nurture their development with their programs. Their programs include the Preschool Movement and Music Program, which adds value to child care centers through movement and music, combining creative dance, tumbling, and capoeira, all essential components of the early childhood education. Capoeira Chattanooga, also a program of the Moving Group Kids Garvey program, specializes in providing movement and music enrichment in preschools and for all people ages 6 and up. Capoeira Chattanooga is a collective of people who practice the Afro-Brazilian martial art of capoeira, led by Chattanooga native Coach Cherokee. For more information on Moving Group Kids and Capoeira Chattanooga, please click the links found in the liner notes. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theatre company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. 
The claims presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or a reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ATC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast.